Welcome to the Financial Planners South Africa podcast, a show dedicated to driving the positive evolution of financial advice, specifically in South Africa. To join a global community of financial advisors, sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice, head to xyadvisor.com. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion, people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. AssetMap is a proud sponsor of this podcast. Are you looking for the next big thing in advisor technology? AssetMap is used by thousands of financial advisors to help create more meaningful conversations with clients. See for yourself how AssetMap is leading the next phase of financial advice delivery. Learn more at asset-map.com forward slash Louis for special listeners discount. This episode is proudly brought to you by Alan Gray. They say it's important to live for today. Although that might be true, we can't forget to plan for tomorrow. There's a lot of it left, after all. Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. Visit www.alangray.co.za to learn how we build long-term wealth for clients. Welcome to another episode of Financial Planners South Africa. In this episode, I sit down with Vainant Ghaus. Vainant is a certified financial planner at Gradage Mahura Investments and is the author of To 100 and Beyond. I hope you enjoy this conversation for new financial planners and clients that struggle with the idea of living past their projected age. Vainant and myself jump into topics like retirement planning, the scams that happened in South Africa, why property might not be the best idea for your retirement income planning, and many, many other topics. If you enjoy this episode, please consider liking and subscribing on the platform that you listen to. Thank you. Welcome, Vainant. Um, I'm so happy to have you here today. Uh, for the listeners and the people watching today, Vainant is the author of To A Hundred and Beyond, and we have the pleasure of chatting to him today to unpack a little bit how he got to writing his book, what the magical ingredients are that like really inspired him to do this. And I think this is a wonderful, wonderful book for not only for people that are managing their finances, mm. but also for young financial planners, mm. you know, people starting out in the industry. Vainant, Thank you for joining me. Tell us a little bit how you got into being inspired to write your book. Thanks, Louis. Um, it's probably one of those things I've, I always wanted to do a bit of writing. You know, writing runs in the blood. My dad was a journalist. My brother's a journalist. Um, I did some articles every now and again. Um, so I always wanted to do it, but never had time until lockdown in 2020. Um, so we actually, just that week before lockdown was announced, we moved to a little cozy place on the West Coast. And... Um, we pretty much had peace and quiet and nothing to do for a few months. So I decided good time to do it. I unpacked the dining room table. I put it in the extra bedroom and I sort of locked myself up for almost three months. Not permanently, but you couldn't do anything. You remember it's the ridiculous times when the kids were out. They couldn't go on the beach because they called the police. Um, so I had plenty of time to actually start writing the book. So that's where it started. And... Um, then you sit down and you just start jotting down sort of the chapters that you think uh, is going to work and you, you start writing. 
Then after lockdown, um, life happened again and things became back to normal. And it must have been almost 12 months after that, I eventually kind of said, listen, I've put in all the work. Um, version one was basically done. So, so I wrote it back to front, but I never reviewed it. And then I had to stand back again and say, cool, now I've got to see if all of this makes sense. And that takes a bit of time again as well. So that was phase two sort of a year, year later. And then the work starts to put it out and see if there's any interest, you know, to put it out to publishers. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's the process. Oh, well done. It, it takes the world slowing down for you to tackle a project <laughs> like this. Um, and it's so nice looking back to say, hey, here's, here's something I've made. I want to talk a little bit about the main area that you tackle, and that's the problem with longevity. As financial planners, we tend to rely on our clients and ask them, oh, how old did your parents get? You know, what is the information telling you and what's the data telling us about longevity? There's probably, uh, I mean, there's two interesting parts. The one before longevity, we we sort of briefly spoke beforehand, is the story about retirement. You know, if you kind of look back to where retirement started, Mm -hmm. you know, from all the available records, it seems to have started um, sort of 13 BC in the Roman Empire when soldiers were given a retirement package after 20 years of service. Now, thinking back then, I expect the average life expectancy was 35 or 40 or even less. So most of them never retired. Then it kind of moved on to Germany and Europe, sort of in the 1880s, they started uh, retirement schemes as we know it, and formal retirement only started kind of in 1920 with, if you want to call it mass production or industrialization. The interesting thing is if you look back at all of that, you know, post the Roman Empire, retirement age has always been 65. Mm -hmm. You know, so it started in 1880, then in 1920, it sort of really gained traction in the way that we know it, retirement planning. And during that whole period, retirement age was 65. So so when retirement was developed, most people never lived to retirement date. So, So it was never actually a really a big issue. Um, but if you look at it at the moment, you know, so, so firstly, that hasn't changed. And the one thing that has changed, the numbers that you talk about, is people are living longer. Mm-hmm. You know, just sort of like the headline stats, you know, the, um, if you look at the numbers, you know, people that are born today, one in two will live into 100. You know, if you look mm-hmm. at what the UN is saying, they're kind of saying, you know, mm-hmm. by 2050, that's not too far off. You know, 100 will be mm-hmm. the norm in how long mm-hmm. people live. And the numbers are just scary. You know, over the last 100 years, um, life expectancy increased by 25 years. You know, during the first part of that, it was a lot quicker, the increase in developed nations. And the second part it was a lot quicker in developing nations. Obviously, it's technology and, and, and knowledge sort of like spread to developing countries. But at the moment, you know, in a, you probably for every four years you live, you need to add on another year of longevity to your life that gets added that you didn't plan for. So the numbers are um, scary at the least, and I think most people completely underestimate how long they live for. And you probably know, if you ask people, you know, as you say, if you ask your parents and you say, oh, how long do you think you're going to live? Even if you look at most of the numbers used, it kind of goes into the 80s normally, normal mortality stuff, 82 or 86 or something. And most people say, no, I'm not going to get there. Um, So I think people completely underestimate the numbers. And, you know, what we kind of say is if you look at joint mortality, so husband and wife, one of them has a high probability to live into their Mm mid-90s. So at the minimum, you need to plan for mid-90s if you're kind of 40s or 50s. For a young couple, you you probably need to plan for 100, you know, if you're in your 20s or 30s. And, And that's different to, I think, what we normally do. 
what yeah. you plan for. Yeah, that can be very scary. Just looking at these massive numbers saying, where do we start? And one part, one of the chapters you mentioned, as early as possible, save as much as possible. And I think you mentioned that invest as aggressively as what you can. You tackle in your book quite a few different areas. You know, one of it is basic financial mm. planning ideas. One of it is, you know, these Ponzi schemes that mm. we've had. And, and I really enjoyed that chapter, just looking back and saying, why did people fall in these traps? Mm. Can we talk a little bit about that, what you saw in your in your own research? Um, schemes and scams and lost fortunes. And probably, you know, having been in the industry for a while as well, is it becomes very real when you deal with it firsthand. You, you know, you spoke about some personal client experiences before we started, and I remember being in Cape Town and one of the schemes, relative value arbitrage, you know, it was rife in Cape Town. And people would come to us and say, listen, uh, my client's investing in these things, what should I do? And every time you look at it, you just kind of think, it, it's so obvious, you know, this is a scheme. The data's wrong. If you look at the prospectus, you just can't find any supporting evidence. Um, the historic numbers are all just wrong. So I think the, the reason, it, it seems obvious, you know, to if, if you want to call it the trained eye, um, and it's normally very simple, you know, it's back to that point. If it looks too good to be true, it is. I mean, so that then you always start investigating. But back to your question, why do people fall to it? It's sadly normally the most vulnerable that fall for it. You know, so people that didn't do all the right things, they started too late, they cashed in the pension, um, they didn't do the right stuff. Now they get to a point where they're desperate and in their desperation, they need to look for something that's better than what the market provides. You know, so, and that's always in these schemes, it's always the point is it's better than what you can get from doing normal investments or normal savings. Mm -hmm. And sadly, people fall, fall for it. You know, if it was the property syndications that we had 10, 20 years back, the share maxes, if it's the relative value arbitrages, you know, or if it's uh, the, the latest one, cryptocurrency scams. You know, if, if you look at some of them, they provided a guaranteed return of 0.5% per day. Now, now try and compound 0.5% per day. The, the numbers are just absolutely ridiculous, but people fall for it, sadly because they need that extra bit and they fall for these schemes. Um, so so it's, it's a sad state of affairs that people fall for it, but it still happens. It's still a, a big reality. So Vainant, if you're not looking at you know high returns as the holy grail to fix your problem, uh, you tackle it in your book quite well, all the different other areas. Where should someone start? Let's say someone in their early 40s that are saying, I'm worried that me and my partner might live to 100 or beyond. I know that I'm not going to get super returns somewhere. Where do they start? The um, And I sort of talk about that, the lessons my dad never told me. Because I think reality is, you know, finance is not something that when we grew up was spoken about at home. And still today, people don't talk about it enough. It's not in textbooks. It's not taught at university. But, but some of the basics are very simple. So, so I'll just start in the very basics and then expand slightly. Um, one of the guys I used to work with, um, Rian LaRue, you know, economist of the year, he always kind of used to simplify stuff and saying, there's only three or four things you need to do. You know, very simply, if you look at it, you need to start as early as possible, save as, in, as much as possible. So it's that 15, 20% we kind of normally learn in the textbooks and get a decent return. Um, so if you try and do those basics right, that's the good starting point. But I think too often people try and overcomplicate it and get one of the elements. You know, often and you'd know people try and get the asset mix right or the is it passive, is it that, is it, you know, what's that mix? Um, 
that's important, but just start early, save enough, get a decent return, which is relatively easy. Then you can try and be smart and fancy around it. Um, and I love that quote in the the richest man in Babylon, which uh, you know, a lovely little book, the parables, um, and it still kind of says a part of what you earn is yours to keep. So I think if people take away that one bit, and I, and I mentioned that in the book as well, a part of what you earn is yours to keep. And the sooner you start doing that, in putting away fifteen or twenty percent, um, you know, then you've started. Then you can try and do stuff better and smarter and use tax breaks and other stuff. But that's that's the starting point. I love that. A part of what you earn is yours to keep. And it reminds me of Robert Kiyosaki and the rich dad poor dad. You know, pay yourself first. Yeah. Um, and so all of them seem to have a similar theme. Just get used to putting money in your own pocket. Mm-hmm. Matt Gardner uh, talks about the four, you know, the four bears, and he wrote a book for for children mm-hmm. around spending, saving, investing, and giving. And so this would speak really to the investment piece of that. Yeah. Who was this book originally written for? Um, who did you have in mind when you when you wrote this? It it, it was probably intentionally kind of written for two audiences and and you probably caught that when you read it as well it is very specifically and i always when i started i had a goal in saying i want an easy reading book and i don't want more than 200 pages and i want it to be simple so that anybody can pick it off the shelf so my intention was kind of always a go-to guide for financial planning but that talks to a key issue at hand. So, I mean, throughout the book, the key theme is you're going to live longer. You really need to think about this stuff and what do you need to think about. But it's written as an easy, simple reading book, targeted 200 pages. We almost got there. Um, and I always suspect that there might be a, a very particular area for financial planners new or coming into the industry. It's got a lot of um, learnings from myself, learnings from all the readings, but, but there's a lot of very good stuff in there and things you need to know and you pick up through experience, you know, having been in the industry for uh, more than 20 years. Yeah, I've, I've almost seen this as a bit of a textbook. Uh, you can jump between chapters, you can say, oh, this looks interesting to me. It's not necessarily one that you'll pick up and start from the beginning to, to the end. Yeah. Was that your intention? Yeah, and it's very specifically kind of say when I sat down, I started writing it and re-looking it. It's trying to have a natural flow to what is the big issue we're facing. It is the this fact that you're living longer. What are the basics you need to write? But it does go through to then eventually in saying, how do you do this stuff? You know, so toward the back end, if you're retiring retirement property, you know, how to think about it, how to think about investing in property. So you're quite right. It tries to cover from starting out to eventually thinking about in retirement and then back to the purpose as I often talk about these multiple chapters in retirement as well. So depending what chapter you're going towards, what are the key issues? And it might be that at the moment one chapter, a few chapters might not be relevant. But as you progress or as you look at stuff, you probably might flick back and look at stuff that might that's more relevant at the time. So it tries to address from getting started to a chapter on retirement to retirement homes and what are the options and how do they work. Um, so you're quite right. People might read either all of it or a part and flick to something that might be um, of more interest at that point in time. Bernard, let's chat about that. Um, the part where someone is now retired or as you say, moving into their new chapter and they need to draw a sustainable income from from the investment parts. What are the things that they're getting wrong at the moment? And sometimes with the help or without the help of financial planners. Yeah, I I think firstly, and I I do mention in the book is, you know, I think quite often we think about retirements a a line in the sand. 
you know, you plan for retirement, which is at a date and point, you know, be it 55, 60, 65, whatever that retirement date is, and you plan for that starting at 65. Um, I think if you're living so much longer, and if we look at just how life has evolved, you know, you need to think about multiple chapters in retirement firstly. So that's the starting point, and our point I make in, in the book again is saying, it's not about, it doesn't start with your financial plan. It starts with back to the point, your life plan. So you first need to sit back with your spouse, partner, and whatever, mm-hmm. ideally way before retirement and talk about what do those next chapters look like. And, and for most people, particularly that I deal with, they are quite different. You know, so there could be a first chapter, which might involve mm-hmm. continuing working, consulting, doing some stuff. Um, either in previous employment or doing something very different, but there might be intentional part in the first chapter, which is saying, I'm not physically retiring from work, I'm doing other stuff. Stuff I want to do, stuff that I love, or I need to continue working because the numbers don't work. But, but there's a first chapter, which could be a um, almost a bit of a hybrid um, between working and retiring. Then there could be two or three chapters after that. You know, after that might be where it becomes a bit more, if you want to call it um, active retiree, but not working. So still alive, traveling, seeing the kids, seeing the world, but intentionally the work stops and there could be a last chapter which might or might not involve frail care. So I think the starting point is all of those chapters look different for everybody, um, but it's good to start with saying, what does life look like after 65? What are my chapters? It might be one, two, three, and it might be more for, for some people. Once you've figured out those chapters, then you can start building your plan around it. And that plan might mean at normal retirement age at 65, you might not need income at all. Or you might need something to provide a wee bit of income, reinvest other stuff, keep it for longer, etc. So, so there's many multiple financial or investment strategies, but it's got a plan for the life plan first, the, those different chapters. Someone said last week, we don't have financial goals. We have life goals with a price tag on it. And I love that because, you know, as you're saying, it should start with with your life plan. It should start with the people involved with you. In South Africa, a lot of people rely on property as an income stream Mm. post-retirement. Can you tell us a little bit more what you cover in the book around property? Because you mentioned that earlier as well. Um, I'll I'll just broaden that slightly and then get get back to property. And often I think one of the biggest failings I see in retirement plans is people that are only dependent on one income stream in retirement. You know, we spend a huge amount of time in planning in that whole thing about diversifying, building up assets towards retirement, etc. And I think one should be a lot more purposeful in saying, given that life plan after 65, those different chapters, what are the various income streams that work, um, both personally that, that fit your 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 financial personality, but also from a tax perspective and other, other normal planning perspectives. And that could include a traditional living annuity, which we know most people still use. It could include guaranteed annuities, it include, could include dividends, and it could include property. So from that broader context, I firstly say in a broader perspective, there is a place for diversified income streams post-retirement, and that's not only about diversifying in a living annuity. It, it, it's a bit broader than that. Property could be a part in that. I do raise the point in saying, you know, having lived through the share maxes and the property syndications, and I, I kind of say in the book, listen, I'm probably overweight my own portfolio in property, so just take that. Uh, I've got too much property. 
But what does worry me is the way that many of the new property schemes are being marketed. You know, it's almost like the old property syndications, except you buy physical versus buying a share in property. And I attended a few of these. You know, one always has to be open and sort of, um, you know, learn what people are doing and what the information is being provided. And when you go into these sessions, it seems like the property gospel, you know. When you go out, then you have to start doing the hard work. And, and the key point I make in property is saying it's like any other investment. If you buy it, buy it for the right price and it becomes a decent investment. Many of the current things being marketed, I, I did raise a concern in saying, be sure you understand the numbers. Because once you dig into the numbers, uh, firstly, the property returns are completely overestimated. You know, I've got the FNB and APSA data kind of over the long term. Property doesn't really beat inflation. It's mostly lifestyle asset. So, so check the numbers, check the assumptions around um, historic growth in property and check the assumptions around increases in um, rental income. Just those two things in every single proposal I've looked at is completely overestimated which means people are buying into a proposition that is faulty by design. Um, so like any investment, get, getting back to it, I'm overweight, but buy for the right price. And when you do buy into any of these investment proposals or um, you might see the syndication or proposition, just be sure to double check the numbers and assumptions. If you're comfortable, it's fine, but check those and check that you're buying for the right price. Yeah. Venant, I, I really like how you're saying, look at the data and let the data tell you a story and check those assumptions. But for most people, they don't necessarily have the skills to interrogate the information or even know where to start looking. What would your advice be to those people? Yeah, and I think, Louis, that goes back to both the investment schemes and property. Um, and I think for both of those, often there is the benefit of a signing board. So that is going to a professional certified financial planner, um, either bouncing off ideas, double checking, checking the assumptions, um, or in some cases might actually um, involve going to accountant or anybody similar as well. But firstly, ideally look at the numbers. If you're unsure, if, if it, the number's looking too good to be true, go to someone objective to provide a second opinion, a certified financial planner. And the same in property. You know, as I say, it, it's got a place in a more a broader, diversified portfolio, but to check it works, check the assumptions right, get a second opinion and bounce it off your CFP, your financial planner. And Venant, as a certified financial planner, you mentioned quite a bit uh, the firm that you're involved in, which is Gradich Mahuru. Um, what are your clients saying that you are now a published author or is this a surprise that's waiting for them? Um, I, I think I'll probably get the feedback in the next few <laughs> weeks or so. Um, this is, you know, the, the, the book sort of started off this week on the shelf and the, the launch kind of starts this week. So it's only just started. But, you know, to date, the feedback received, um, you know, from people is, is, is quite positive. Um, I think most people haven't actually gotten to read the book yet. So I'm looking forward to the feedback as people read it. And any of this audience, uh, welcome any feedback online or any notes on uh, what works, other questions or any constructive comments, you know, things we might have missed. Let's maybe talk a little bit about the role of kind of creating and publishing and, and just putting out more work as a financial planner. I know you and your firm also do a lot of work to educate people. Where do we draw the line between, you know, doing pro bono work and education work and actually, you know, just seeing clients and spending on that? Because there's still this perception that financial planners are there to provide products to clients. 
Yeah, I think it's it, it's a difficult one to answer because I think it depends on the structure of each business. You know, so when you set up a financial planning business, you've got a certain idea of how you're going to position the business, where your clients are going to come from, etc. Um, the the benefit of publishing stuff, I think, is twofold. The the one is importantly, you know, I think people underestimate how much effort goes into publishing a article um, because you've got to check and double check and be sure your facts are absolutely correct. So you are putting yourself out as a as an expert on the subject matter, and I think eventually clients do see that. You know, they read it and kind of say. That makes sense. So it provides credibility to both existing clients and to new clients. And that's an important part in, in, in building a business. So be that writing an article or a book, it adds credibility to your your business and your brand. Um, and I think clients enjoy reading something that their financial plan has written and is out in the public domain. So I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, where to draw the line on doing that versus pro bono work I think firstly, if one does it, you have to enjoy it and it's going to be a passion. You know, you, you can't force yourself to write stuff or to publish stuff if you don't really enjoy it. So if you enjoy it, it probably becomes a personal balance between saying, how much time do I have for this versus, you know, um, helping my clients? And it becomes that balance. Um, so just back to the question on pro bono work, I think eventually there's a balance. You know, previously I spoke to, to Rudolf a bit about the how does one deal with that? Because what we found often is because you are in the public domain, you know, and you are presenting views and opinions, people often want to bounce off ideas. And that doesn't become the one meeting or the one call. It often does end up in, you know, 10 hours of work or so. So I think it's important to position your proposition to clients, however your charging structure might be upfront. And when people do seek advice, if they want the one hour of advice, that's fine. But it is a professional service that you're providing and we need to charge appropriately for that service. If that ends up in 10 hours of work or a basic financial plan, depending on how your proposition is structured, the important thing is to, if it's a quick question, you address it. If clients do want to come in for advice, it's important to position and saying, that's perfect. Dealing with you as a professional, this is our proposition and how we can support you. And you need to set that out upfront for clients. Vernon, this very much covers the topic of the expert role that financial planners can fulfill, stress testing, you know, challenging their assumptions. But then there's another side, the human side, which you also mentioned in your book that this is not necessarily the one that's going to tackle the psychological aspect of it. But I do want to talk about it a little bit because it's often very difficult for someone to go into this next chapter. How are you currently helping your clients going through that? Yeah, so, so I think, you know, even though I say we don't delve into in detail, the, the purpose was in that, but it still does it to a large extent. Because I think a big part of that is back to the discussions on what does that next life chapter look like? You know, what are the plans? And it doesn't matter if you're currently 20 or 50, um, part of the financial planning experience is what do your next chapters look like? You know, what are your plans? What are your ambitions? What are your dreams? Um, particularly if you think in the context of the book, it's standing back and saying, what happens after 65? And it talks to the fact and saying, it's not always, it's part of our role to guide clients on that, but also to help them in how to get there. You know, start writing it down, go home, chat to someone that you trust. You know, not just your financial planner, be it a spouse, be it a partner, be it a friend. You know, sit down and talk to someone that you trust and that you can share your life plan with to start crafting that plan. Um, 
we can assist in guiding clients to that extent. And then as they come back and sit with us, we can start putting the parts in to help them achieve that um, once they've put their life journey together. So, so a lot of it I kind of talk through helping clients in the journey, partnering with friends, colleagues, and putting pen to paper, like anything, you know, you've got to plot your journey. And, and then we can support in saying, how do we assist clients to get there? Yeah, and oftentimes the finance part is such a big worry. And I think you've tackled it so nicely, approaching it, breaking it down, thinking about the principles, and kind of just moving ahead with that. You have a background in future studies, and you clearly think a lot about the future. What do you think your next chapter would look like? And, you know, what could we expect from that just as a, as a fun little exercise? So, and I mean, part of it's interesting, but I mean, part of writing the book is part of that next chapter. You know, so having been in a corporate for uh, 20, 30 years of my life, you know, the first chapter started joining my friends and colleagues at Gradage Motor Investments. Um, part of the book's that next chapter. You know, so w the one thing that COVID taught us is you can work from anywhere. You know, so, so we continue to serve clients right across the country, um, internationally, you know, number of European countries, etc. And it's odd, but I think COVID kind of forced clients firstly into what we expected for a long time, that you don't need to meet face-to-face, -face, and clients are increasingly comfortable with doing that. So back to that next chapter, you know, part of that next chapter is we've got a cozy little place up the West Coast. I see myself eventually going there. I first have to get a few kids through school and varsity. But if you're talking next chapter, so the first chapter, my, my, my current uh, path is um, kids. You know, they've got to get through varsity and, and school. The chapter after that is not stopping working, but actually setting up my business on the West Coast. You know, I can very comfortably work from there, see my clients wherever they might be, and occasionally, you know, arrange the face-to-face the -face meetings. But that's the next part in the chapter. And that probably is the 65 to 70 part or so. You know, because um, I do say there, I don't think I can sit at home. My wife <laughs> might not be able to deal with it on a 24-hour, 24-7 basis. So, you know, I need to keep busy. And, and that's the 65 to 70 part. So, and after that is reassessing and saying, is that now going to into formal. So, yeah, uh, the book kind of also talks to how I approach my chapters and, and thinking about it. I like how it's not too detailed and not too structured saying, okay, at this point in the future, then I can reassess. But your financial backing will have that. Last week, we had Sydney Nevine, who's a registered life planner. And one of the comments he made was that the industry that we're in is the most lucrative industry in the world and the money is not bad either. <laughs> yeah. you know, we get to help people on a daily basis. And as you're saying, you can do that anywhere. It doesn't have to be in your office meeting yeah. people face to face. Vainant, I want to thank you so much for being here today. It was wonderful having you. Um, I look forward to sharing this book with colleagues and with clients. Um, it definitely is one that's going to be on our shelf. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Great, thanks Lee. Great being here. Thank you.